Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of welcoming back to the podcast Dr. Nilima, pardon me, Dr. Nilima Tikopeka to talk about a fascinating and beautiful, visually stunning publication called Shakti, an exploration of the divine feminine. Welcome back to the podcast, Nilima. Thank you, Raj. I'm very happy to be here. So how did you end up writing on Shakti? What is the story behind this book? Oh gosh, the story is very emotional because um, I wrote this during the lockdown. Of course, when the when it came to me, the proposal came to me from the publishers. Uh, they were sort of like commissioning the work, but you know, they asked me to write the book. I None of us knew how long the lockdown would be. So, um, you know, as all researchers who are writing books, you thought, you know, you'd take recourse to libraries and you'd, take, you'd go and look at original sources. And, and, and I sort of like said yes, not realizing that the entire book would be written just using my library and all the limited sources because the lockdown continued and COVID became very bad. And it became like Delta. And, uh, there were people, you know, passing away all around me. There was sadness and and, and why I said yes was uh, on a very cool January morning, uh, I got a phone call that uh, we want you to write this book on Shakti. And I just didn't understand what they were talking about. They said, it's not a coffee table book. And yet it is a coffee table book. So I said, what is this? So they said, okay, hold on. We're going to try and get you a, get across to you a book that is in the same series that came out last year called Ramayan. I said, sure. I didn't know how they'd get it across, but somehow they got it across, even though the whole city was you know, closed down. And the moment we opened it and we saw how beautiful the publication was, um, we just said, my husband said, and I, it was just the two of us in the house, and he said, you have to do this. And that's how I said yes to it, because uh, Ramayan before this was so beautiful, and I believed that Shakti was going to be in the exact same format, exact same pages, exact same everything, the words, and everything like it. 200, the book is 200,000 words, by the way. And it was going to be huge. And, and what was surprising was they had a deadline of six months, believe it or not. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow, that's quite the story. You know, I can't help but think about a similar experience I've had. I think it was the beginning of 2021. We'll see, I sort of, after the major lockdown, but still in, in COVID, where I received an email from a uh, Leaping Hair Press to say, you know, uh, the, the long story short, I taught, taught a course uh, called uh, Yoga in Hindu Mythology at a platform called Yogic Studies, and I shared some some of the myths behind the author, asanas to the students there. And, and one of the students there shared it with her students, and one of her students worked at this publishing house, and the publishing house came back and said, hey, we specialize in illustrated books for adults. <laughs> we would like a book on this topic. And so this book is the stories behind the poses. And I, I, I didn't even quite know what they meant. Until they sent an example, I thought, wow, never in a thousand years as an academic, I think I would write a book with pictures in it. <laughs> Yet, nevertheless, it, it adds so much value. I mean, and this book in particular 
is visually stunning and it's it it, it is it, you know it is a coffee table book but i think of it as a coffee table book plus it's there's tons and tons of content in there and it it seems to me a a, a fantastic uh teaching tool yes. thank you thank you thank you well you know uh, what i what i can say about the illustrations and you know i looked at other books on goddesses you know there there are different authors who will take up different historians who would take up different aspects of the goddess, like somebody would take up the Jain goddesses, somebody would take up Buddhist goddesses, whereas here I had to do all of that. So it's about 89 goddesses uh, from different parts, even, even you know, from Singapore, even from Nepal, from Sri Lanka. And I had to take on uh, all of them, not having that kind of expertise in all these goddesses. But, you know, uh, it was a challenge because where am I going to get the material from? So I was desperately asking my ex-students for PDFs or, you know, anybody who had PDFs, anybody who could get a, you know, photocopy thing across to me or, you know, I could download something. It was very difficult. But guess what? Even while I was teaching online, I would finish my online teaching. At least I didn't have to commute to college. And I could immediately start work on Shakti because this is a very unusual book. Every page every in fact it's not called page it's called spread two pages the two pages that you when you open the book it's a spread and that spread is in is complete in itself you don't have to look at the next page if you don't want you want to know something about tulsi one spread everything is there and um, it's very unusual because they'll have a box a small box with maybe 100 to 500 words which will then tell you something about what's happening in modern day india so I thought that this was a wonderful idea. You have on the same page quotations from the scriptures. You have the modern day in the box. You have the whole, you know, the text which is talking about history. Because I, being a historian, I couldn't escape history. So I brought in a lot of history. And it sounds like a mishmash, but it actually works. Because <laughs> the book is doing very well, I have to say. Very, very well. I'm, well, I'm, I'm glad it's doing well. And, and no doubt the podcast will even support that endeavor. Now, now the structure, the structure, it, it's it's great in that um, it's it's comprehensive, yeah. It's accessible and comprehensive. So if someone wants sort of to learn about an aspect or even uh, survey the various aspects of um, uh, like goddess veneration, the sacred feminine in the Indic context in the Indian subcontinent, then 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 you know, uh, tell us about the structure. Tell us about the five, uh, six chapters, and the listeners will get a sense of the sort of the array of content. Yes. When we, you know, we started off, uh, I started the book by talking about my sources. So how do we approach the different sources that are there? You know, whether you start with Indus Valley or you start with, uh, you know, with sculpture, you start with iconography, with, uh, with Vedic sources, Quranic sources. So we start off with that, and then we go into the goddess tradition. And the goddess tradition also, I tried to go a little bit uh, historically, and you know, chronologically. Uh, that didn't always work because there was also thematic uh, approach. So um, we we did, you know, the we did Lakshmi and all, everything to do with Lakshmi. We did Saraswati. We did some of the main goddesses. And then we moved on to landscapes. So we did like the river goddesses. We did the mountain goddesses. So we covered uh, a whole range of different goddesses, um, which were which are found in scripture, which are found in folklore, which are found only in ritual, which are found in, uh, let's say, just in iconographic form. You don't see that otherwise. I mean, you don't hear of her otherwise. So it's it's a lot of you know historically, it's going through different ages and different periods, and um, so yes, it's 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 
it's not something that maybe a historian would like to do because a historian, she would like to just stick to, you know, chronology and sources. And this is something meant for everyone who wants to know about Lakshmi, let's say two, three big pages, everything about Lakshmi that I can possibly tell you, uh, but short and a little bit of the, you know, a little bit of the controversy also. Like for instance, we know Lakshmi as the goddess of fortune. And uh, we know her as being there right from the time of the Sanchi uh, Super, very, very early uh, depictions of her. She's one of the earliest goddesses uh, depicted. So we know that she she has a background of Buddhism, in Buddhism as well as in Hinduism. And uh, then, then we, I bring in the Devi Bhagavat Quran, in which Lakshmi is um, a co-wife along with Saraswati and Ganga, a Vishnu. So how they quarrel with each other. So there's a sense of humor in the Devi Bhagavat Puran because not only do they three of them quarrel with each other, but they curse each other. And when they curse each other, you get to know about uh, realities of India today. Like for instance, uh, Ganga curses Saraswati that you will become a celestial river who will just disappear. The moment you enter uh, the, the terrestrial world, after some time you will disappear. So Saraswati in turn, she curses uh, uh, Ganga, and she says that, well, you will also become from a celestial river, you will become a terrestrial river. And when you become a terrestrial river, only dead bodies and ashes and, you know, tendons will be thrown into you. So this is the reality of India. We know this is what happens in the, you know, ritual of uh, immersing the, the dead in Ganga. And then finally, Lakshmi, who had intervened in the fight between the third wife, she is then told that she, because you intervened that we don't like, you know, didn't like how you behave, you're going to become a tree. So she becomes Tulsi. So you see, Devi Bhagavat Puran will be saying something totally different, but yet it is interesting to know how it developed, how concepts developed in Eastern India, for instance, because it's not, um, it's not, Devi Bhagavat Puran doesn't seem to be, you know, like we know all the Purans at some geographical locale. So perhaps in East, Southern India, uh, Southeast India, we find some of this kind of, you know, myth uh, prevailing of Vishnu having three wives and how they quarrel with each other. And in yet another place, you will not find that myth at all. You will not find that tradition at all. So I feel that um, what I've tried to give here is the kind of plurality of tradition, plurality of myths, the, you know, the kind of um, local traditions that have existed side by side and how they've got amalgamated into the higher tradition you know, into the into the scriptural world. Uh, that's what we have. I have tried to do, and we have we find different chapters there for dealing with these different uh, goddesses. Yeah, uh, yeah. Certainly, one can one can see the challenge, or one can imagine the challenge of such an enterprise because yeah. um, it, it, because these traditions are extraordinarily rich and diverse. And what you are aiming to do, as I understand it, is provide a, 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 a relevant and, and and accessible composite. Yes. You know, yeah, a sampling. So, so um, uh, certainly as an historian, that you have a particular methodology and penchant, and you bring that into this work. But really, rather than uh, thinking temporally, we're all we're thinking thematically. Yes. Where do we see Lakshmi? Whether or not there is a direct link from this regional iteration of Lakshmi's biography and what we see in uh, the Sri Suktam and what we see, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And we, but on the ground, folks engaging these goddesses this is how they're engaging them with uh, with respect to their known associations in this time from a variety of historical periods so um it, it really is interesting so so um 30,000 foot view okay um 
I, this is a subject near and dear to my heart. Obviously, I my my PhD was on the, the Devi Mahatmya. Yes. Irrespective of that, tell me, is it anomalous? You know, is it is it how an, uh, the, the, the idea of of, of goddesses or a great goddess or goddess worship? Um, do we uh, how how can we characterize this either? Either through the lens of comparative religion, if you like, or within the Indic subcontinent, you know what, what's perhaps novel or anomalous about this this phenomenon. Um, see, uh, where the goddess is concerned, she's also she also has cosmic duties. But I realized while writing this book that more than the cosmic the cosmic duties are there. She is the greatest, especially the Shaktas will all know that she is the greatest. They will not think Vishnu is the greater, greater or Shiva, but. She also is very great where the mundane is concerned. So when she came and crept into Buddhism, when she crept into Jainism, she was taking care of epidemics. She was taking care of illnesses. She was taking care of uh, child death, children's dying. You know, she was taking care of, you know, uh, let's say famine. And, uh, you know, like when you look at Annapurna and the whole conversation between Shiva and Parvati, when Parvati represents the material and she says that, and he says, no, material is not important. Only spiritual aspect is important as the Purusha. And then she comes, she, a famine takes place and everybody is dying of starvation. And she appears, you know, with her lady and her bowl and she starts serving everyone as Annapurna Devi. And Shiva has to bow down to her and say, yes, material aspect of life is very important. So she, the goddess, to the people of India, as far as I can see, besides other things, represents the very day-to-day -day needs. And they all, it's not just representing day-to-day -day needs, but it's also very uh, participative. The, all the, the, the people who believe in the goddess, they will take part in her 24-hour vigil, that jagrans that take place. They will get possessed by the goddess. They will take her in her various processions. They will dress her up and in the south and take her, you know, like Nakshi. For instance, they'll, they'll take her to her husband's of the Reshwara. Or they'll cook pongal on the entire street. Then they'll cook that lovely uh, khichri, which is called pongal, you know, during the festival time. And they'll participate in it because this is an offering to her. So uh, what it is, is it's very participative. Whether it's the wedding of the goddess, whether it is cooking for her, whether it is giving her bangles, like in Singapore, the goddess, she's she's worshipped by giving her bangles. You go down south, any of the goddesses, what will be one of the main things that you give to the goddess when you go there? It's a sari. So you feel like, okay, I am also being part of it. I'm decorating her. Apparently, Minakshi in Madurai, the beautiful temple, Minakshi, one day she will be dressed only in diamonds that had worshippers have been there now. One day it'll be only gold jewelry. Like that people, nobody know, they, they sort of like participate in the decoration of the goddess and the, you know, allurement of the goddess in the, in everything of the goddess. So it's participative. It's also the fact that she's a protector. She's a protector in the day-to-day -day life. She's a protector at the cosmic level. So I think it's many, many different things uh, for the people of the Indians. You know, uh, a mother's work has never done it seems um and 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 certainly certainly through the lens of comparative religion indic religions tend to in my perspective have uh, uh have a pronounced emphasis on imminence not just divine transcendence divine imminence but but within the goddess traditions that's that's um that's heightened it seems yes the, 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 the yes. indwelling presence the imminence that the mother's here you know she's yeah. within all of us there's a, a, a more immediacy somehow yeah Perhaps unsurprising. Um, um, what is the, uh, you mentioned in passing in this valley civilization, so what is the earliest evidence we have of, um, of uh, 
veneration of the sacred feminine in the in the subcontinent. We could go back to the Paleolithic, but that's a little unclear with the with the triangle shaped Paleolithic and the Neolithic. But definitely in the Neolithic, uh, we have. I mean, there are figurines which have been called mother goddess figurines. Uh, we're not entirely sure why we are a little sure. Uh, let's say why we we can say that yes, they were because later on we have similar terracotta figurines made in the Kutlan period. And, you know, uh, they're very similar to the ones that you find in the Neolithic and also in Meherika, for instance, or even in Indus civilization. So I would think that these were like either votive offerings or they were offerings because some of them have been found in tanks, water tanks. So maybe that whole idea of immersion had started at that time itself, that you you make a terracotta image of a goddess and you you pray to her for a certain time. And when your vow, when your when your wishes are fulfilled, then you immerse her in a water tank because that's where some of them have been found. So maybe they were some kind of goddesses. I'm not sure if we can use the label mother goddesses, but yes, they were some kind of they may have been some goddesses. It's Till the script is deciphered satisfactorily, we cannot say anything, you know, in a very uh, certain way. We have to be a little uncertain about the kind of labels we give to them. But I would think from Indus times, there seems to be in a nascent stage uh, some kind of worship of the goddess. Uh, again, not entirely sure. And then, of course, when we come to the Vedic text, which is the next set of uh, evidence that we have, um, we find that the goddess is has been marginalized. She's not really playing that great role. I mean, you would know she's, you know, she's Aranyani or she's she's Usha. So she's you know ma manifesting some. She's sort of like she's, um, yeah, nature. She, yeah, or uh, a goddess rather than the goddess. Yeah. Yes, and she's also a spouse sometimes. So Indra and Indrani, but she doesn't have that uh, you know kind of power and autonomy except in that one Devi Sukta which is there, in which she is uh, you know uh, she is experiencing herself as flying above and you know taking care of all, flying with the Rudras, flying with everyone, and you know taking care of everyone, entering everyone's home that she belongs to. Everyone. That's a very beautiful verse that we find in the tenth mandala. It's, if I'm not mistaken, 125th uh, Suktam. And so you can see the concept or idea of Shakti, uh, because otherwise you don't see it. When you think of Shakti, you think of something that is a kind of enabler. It's a, it, it enables you. It, it, it enables you. It's a, like a, it's a power. It's a kinetic energy. You don't find that in, in the Greek faith or in the early Vedic text at all. But that one hymn sort of like represents that. And then later on, the whole idea of Shakti. And that's another thing I told the, the, the publishers had already decided they wanted to call it Shakti. And I said, but, you know, Shakti is only Durga. Shakti is only Kali. Shakti is only Katyayani. And they said, no, we want you to talk about all the goddesses uh, as representing the concept of Shakti. So I had a bit of a tough time, but when we looked into the Adbhut Ramayana, for instance, then I found a Shaktic form of Sita as well, who I never associated with Shaktism. So it's not just, and, and that I did with others as well. So uh, we do find that many of the goddesses in alternative texts uh, do have the concept of Shakti. Shakti is permeating all the goddesses. It's even Sita. So she, I mean, I was very surprised in the Angut Ramayana to find that uh, Sita had defeated a hundred-headed uh, Rakshas, you know, Ravan's cousin brother. And uh, he was from Pushkar. And she sort of like defeated him. Otherwise, Ram was just languishing. He was just not being able to defeat the second uh, Rama. And she was able to do it. And she did it in her Kali form. So they clearly say that 
she she became Kali, Sita became Kali, and she extracts a promise from Ram that he will not let anyone know. In his, he will let her know, everyone know that she's Sita. In fact, that text is also called Sitaian, like Ramayan, Sitaian. And it's called the Adbhut Ramayan. So I learned a lot when I was writing this book about the various sources that are there that we don't look at or we don't pay that much attention to, uh, to show the multi-vocality, multi multiplicity of the goddess tradition. Certainly, from Devi Mahasmya onwards, we have, in, well, in the Sanskritic literature, I mean, who knows what was happening on the ground? There probably was much more happening on the much ground, more. which is why, yeah. which is why they needed to create a Sanskrit text for her. Yes. But certainly, certainly from the Devi Mahasmya onwards, we have this idea, this, this yes. overt, um, this overt association with all of the the, the, the goddesses as types of shaktis associated with yes, Mahadevi. Yes. If I can interfere, there's a. Little, tiny little terracotta plaquettes, plaquettes or plaques, which uh, show a goddess, uh, you know, grappling a buffalo demon. And they, they, they're, they wait, date way before Devi Mahatmaya in the Kushan period. So you have them in second century, and you know, first century, second century. So the idea was there. And then it was incorporated into Sanskrit tradition through the Devi Mahatmaya, as it happens in many cases, you know. So this Hinduism has forever been integrative and forever assimilated different uh, gods and goddesses from the peripheral areas, from marginal areas, and popularized them further, gave them further legitimation and authentication. authentication. And so then we find that uh, they survived. And not only survived, they thrived because uh, they got further legitimacy in another world, the spiritual world, and not just in the folk world. Uh, absolutely, and and uh, uh, what I was saying was that uh, certainly from the Devi Mahatmya onwards, it makes perfect sense to think in the Hindu world of uh, manifestations of the goddess as Shakti. But also, I would say, um, as a concept, as the concept of some sort of energy or power or ability, certainly um, I don't think it's overtly anachronistic to use the label um, Shakti as a concept, as uh, you know, how folks think of the goddess and the goddesses as presiding over various abilities or, or, yes. or power, ability, energy itself. And so, certainly, we could, you know, I understand why the the publisher wants to go with the label Shakti, particularly insofar as all of the goddesses historically would now be considered in modern Hinduism as forms of Shakti by. Millions of practitioners. So, so I understand your, I understand the the quibble as as a scholar uh, clearly, but I also understand why it works on the ground as a as a as as a as a, a, a an appropriate and inviting uh, title for this work. Yes, I think it's going to become this word Shakti is going to become common in the English lexicon as we have, uh, you know, other other words like karma, dharma. These are all sort of like used quite a bit, and I think this thing of give me the Shakti. Give me the Shakti. This is going to become quite. Show me the Shakti. Um, you know, certainly if I have my my way, both as a scholar and as and as a public educator, that will happen. There's a term that um, when I'm teaching at the online school and other places, is a term that comes up because it, nothing else quite uh, works in English. And when we talk about sacralizing objects, for example, or or, or practices, Shaktify. To shaktify something, <laughs> or or shaktifi- shaktification. So, shaktification, okay. <laughs> but then you know, I just like to, uh, uh, when I first started, uh, you know, uh, looking at shakti, really thinking about it deeply. Just as I started writing the book, um, I I was thinking about it as 
you know, sometimes you see it on a person's face or somebody says, how did I see it when I was growing up? It was like my mother calling out and say, hey, Bhagwan, which is, you know, give me Shakti when there was some kind of crisis. And I would think there was something that would come down from above or I would hear, um, you know, Jaya Bhadari singing, Hamko Man Ki Shakti Dena, Man Vijay Kare, you know, that beautiful Guti movie. So I was, I grew up with this idea that Shakti is something that can be given to you, that can be provided to you in times of crisis. And also I used to think that people said, oh, when I went to that temple, I sensed Shakti. So it was something you could sense. It was something that sometimes you could see on the face of a, of a person. They said, we saw Shakti. And it was definitely something you could feel. Like, like when you dip your, your feet into the Ganga, I heard people say, suddenly sound, Shakti ran through them. So it's something, more than anything else, the concept is very experiential. It is not something that you can explain to people when you just think uh, you know, about the concept of Shakti. It is something that you have to experience. So it's the goddess is something that you have to experience. Uh, her Shakti and the way she operates as Kali or as, as, as Durga or as any of the other manifestations, it is something that we experience. It's not just something that you see. Uh, it's it's experiential. I mean, that's all I can say. And, and, and certainly the experiential also yeah. dovetails well with this idea of imminence. It's imminent. Yes. It's yes. experiential. Uh, this emphasis on embodiment. And so yes. Yes. one of the things I, I note in the Devi Mahasmi is that it, every time she appears, out of she comes out of someone's body. Whether yes. it's Parvati's body or Vishnu's body or the body yeah. of all of the devas and their tejas, it's... And this is purposeful. She's and yes. so the idea is that uh, she's here. She's she she's she's yeah. a part and parcel of all, all of the beings of creation. So it's, it's a fascinating um, theological I mean, idea, actually. But Raj, don't you think a little bit of patriarchy comes in with Devi Mahatma that she was born from the pages of all the? Well, I, 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 you know? I think if you I think if you read it that way, yes. But I think. Um, uh, whether whether it's folly or wisdom, I don't know. But I, I read the second episode as through the lens of the first episode, where okay. at creation, Brahma, the Creator, has done nothing. Nothing has been created, and he's royally screwed because Madhu and Kaitaba <laughs> are approaching him to 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 dismantle, uh, you know, to, to the creation before it begins. And he hymns. Who is he hymning to? She's already there, yeah. and so. I don't see the uh, I, there are there are there are interpreters who see that as them creating her, but I think that they they manifest her. Yes, yes. She who was already there in it to creation. Yes, yes. Um, but I, but I, I think you know like I think it's shocking, clearly, clearly given what we know to be true of the 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 avid patriarchy of of of, of India ancient and present. It is utterly shocking that this text would come into existence and be preserved. <laughs> Actually, clearly there was veneration of the sacred feminine. Otherwise, yes, was, it, yes, it, yes, it, it, it undercuts the idea of male power, actually, this text. But many idea. people don't know this. Many people don't know, even though the Devi Mahatma has recited regularly, you know, resting for all. Yeah, but no one knows the content. No one knows that she's actually been created by them. And uh, when I talk about her, it, I, the portions of the Devi Mahatmaya, which I'd love to talk about, is how she stands astride and she laughs so loud that the whole, you know, because it, it's not right for a woman to, you know, laugh so loud or you know, the twang of her bow. Or the but, way but they the cheer, yeah. they, 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 they cheer, they cheer yeah. her for it. Yeah, yeah, she's just so uh, powerful and she's enjoying warfare. 
it's not just good versus evil as simple as that. She is actually enjoying the killing and, you know, and, and, and there's a sense of humor with all these headless people dancing, you know, for her and things like that. You know, the torsos dancing for her. It's just a marvelous text that Devi Mahatmaya. I thought I would write the whole book on just the Devi Mahatmaya, but of course I didn't. But that's my favorite. I mean, I just love that book because it tells us so much about what was happening uh, in various parts of India. It's all, you know, uh, it's a conglomeration of all the different things, you know, coming together in that one book. You know, whether it is Kali, whether it is Rakta Beach, the whole story of Rakta Beach. And when I, when I think about Kali's lonely tongue, like uh, everybody today, you know, you ask them, why does she have a tug out? And they would, they prefer that very nice one saying that, you know, she stepped on her, on her spouse and she was so embarrassed, so she let out her tongue. Uh, which is a very, you know, you'll see many Bengali women, people in the East do that very often. They sort of like bite their tongue in, in embarrassment if they say something wrong or do something wrong. So they said she just stepped on him unknowingly because she was, you know, dancing wildly after she defeated uh, Rakta Beach. And so he had to lie down there so that she would stop. So when she stepped on him. Now, in the Devi Mahatmaya, that's not said. What is said in the Devi Mahatmaya is that she has a lowly tongue to take the blood before, in, in to swallow the blood before it hits the ground. So that a clone doesn't come up across the beach. But this nobody will believe. They'll say, no, 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 she does it out of embarrassment. They're, they're more comfortable with her being embarrassed rather than her loving drinking the blood of Rakta Beach. You know what I mean? It's so, I, I, I'm very, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, well, it's fascinating. Well, to my mind, it's the text is being, the reception of the text is being inflected through patriarchal yes. norms. Yes, yes. All the more shocking that the text was created and yes. was originally received um, you know, by presenting a divine feminine that is, you know, compassionate, but also entirely dharmically wrathful and maniacal yes. to annihilate the enemies of the gods unabashedly. And it wasn't it wasn't uh, sanitized and it wasn't you know, there was no apologetics around it. And yet it's so it's so into the centuries later. Of course, uh, the uh, you know, tradition, uh, certain traditions would prefer other interpretations of Kali yes. and, and what she represents. Yes. And utterly fascinating, actually. It's um, written into the Markande Puran. You know, it's given so much of Puranic, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, it's given such legitimacy by being put into the Markande Puran. It's not an, it's an, people think of it in a, as an independent text, but it's become part of Puranic law, Puranic text, which are, you know, very important uh, Smithy text. You know, so uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, there are so many luscious, luscious illustrations in in the book. Actually, uh, it's it's a visual feast. Uh, there's so many themes as well that we can pursue. Tell us a little bit about the goddess and uh, tantra. There's a chapter on tantra. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I I did tell my publishers that you know that requires a totally different book. Because uh, let me just touch upon it. I told them. I said I don't need. I don't. I can't do that justice to that, uh, to tantra. Because tantra is a whole different way of looking at the world. And uh, but I did try to talk about you know, the importance of the human body and yoga and you know uh, preserving the body and how you have to you know arouse the kundalini uh, through various meditative practices or even through uh, tantric practices like uh, the consumption of the. Panchamakras, you know, the five M's, you know, Madhya, Matsya, all that. So I did write a little bit about it, but it was a field which is too vast to be encapsulated in just two, three pages. I made that clear to them. I said, I'll bring it in 
that in tantrism she is very powerful, just like in shaktism she is very powerful. But she's more powerful in tantrism, in, in my opinion, as a spouse of Shabbat. Both of them together, you know what they what they lead to the, the in the sehesra, the coming together of the two of that and creation taking place. So I didn't go into too much detail because, uh, like I told you, it's too vast an area and it's very esoteric. This book is not esoteric. This book is trying to explain things in a very down-to-earth kind of way. Uh, I didn't, I was sort of like stanching. I was sort of like going away from anything that was, you know, obfuscating. Was anything that was going to make people a little puzzled. Oh, what is she talking about? Because this is meant, this is a book meant for everybody. And that is why people have bought like 10 copies to gift away or 20 copies to gift away. Because they found it in the easy, easy read, yet has a lot of history in it. So they got a lot of knowledge through the history. And um, so I, I I don't know. I, I, I've not talked much about that. So I'm not. Yeah, the, you've included some fascinating, um, I mean, uh, the, the goddesses you've included. For example, you have, uh, you've included the Mahavidyas. Yes. Incredible. Dasha uh, Mahavid, 10 of them. Yes. These yes. 10, uh, this this band of 10 hundred. Good one, but some, <laughs> so, 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 yeah, some of whom are, are, are Panindic-ish, uh, Kamala. Yeah. Uh, I we thought of as Lakshmi, and some of whom are just you just see them, and I mean, yeah. Chinamasta who decapitates herself, yes. you know, yes, yes, uh, yes. Dumavati, like yeah. so. They're these intense tantric deities. So we know goddess, you know, different at different stages of their lives. Well, yeah, it's just fascinating that you see one of the things that the one of the one of the aspects of quote unquote Shakti or Indian goddess traditions that this publication drives home is their utter variety and yeah. the plethora of of really the, the traditions like uh, the, the, the sort of pan-Indic household deities like yeah. uh, Lakshmi, Saraswati, um, various traditions like like Shri Vidya, uh, Tantric traditions, yoginis. Oh, so you... in the, the yoginis, uh, yeah. the, the uh, sacred sites and goddesses, yeah. goddesses implicated in sacred geography and it really is a wealth. Like what it does is it, it shows the reader at a glance the breadth of the various uh, yes. shakta, if you will, or, or feminine divine traditions in yes. South Asia. And so someone can be captivated by a, an excerpt, a vignette, or an image, and then go and take a deep dive. Okay, but but so yes. to my knowledge, this book, of the publications I've come across so far, this one, to my knowledge. Is the most comprehensive Thank in you. one place. Thank no, I mean, I mean it as an observation, perhaps a compliment as well. But I mean to say, I, the, I haven't come across a book where we see strands of everything, every everything known really of of, of South Asian goddess practices in one place. So that if someone wants to do a deep dive, they can. But, but it's, it's it's accessible. I think what I, what I was also trying to do is show how dynamic Hinduism is. I mean, look at it. We created Corona Baby. So Corona Baby is there, and she's just been created. And I had I had looked through newspapers to see where her temples were because there was no source yet talking about it. But Corona Devi was created just now in the last two years, and we have temples for her in Kerala and Bihar. And so, I, if you notice right at the end, I brought that in. So a goddess can be created anytime by the by its worshippers and will be worshipped. I mean, the, I talked about Santoshi Mata that she was created in the 1960s. And then given a legitimacy, oh, she's the daughter of Ganesh. All that is sort of like you get a you get a lineage created for the body so that people will accept her more. But by the way, they, they are being accepted by people en masse. 
people are not really bothered that much about this whole thing that she has to have a Sanskrit background or a Brahminical background. And another thing that I, uh, I mean, uh, one thing I would like to say about the picture, since you talked of the visual and it's a visual treat, I mean, look at the photographs of the worshippers. I have found that the photographs of the worshippers are so moving that they have brought me to tears. Whether it is the one, you know, talking about Ganga Lahedi, or it is the South Indian uh, images of the women, you know, praying to the Mariamma or any of the goddesses. The worshippers have been given so much of importance in this book, uh, you know, as in, in photographs. And so I may not have spoken that much about them, but there's a lot. And in fact, uh, a book is coming out on Sri, Sri Lakshmi very soon by Bedburn Random House. And they've taken the entire excerpt of Tulsi and, uh, and you know, it's part of their book uh, along with other chapters. And I asked them why particularly Tulsi. And they said, because, you know, there are rarely books talking about the ritual. You know, what happens at Tulsi Vibaha and why did it happen? And you've explained that. And so we want to take that and make it part of our book. So it's already being brought into other people's uh, anthologies, which is a nice thing for me. And uh, I've always felt that, you know, uh, historians talk to historians and there's so much of, um, you know, detail that they go into and it's all very important. It's required. But at this time, when I was writing this book, it's this turned out to be a book for everybody because I had limited sources and I had to, you know, just depend on what I had in my life, like I told you, or whatever I could, whatever I could grasp in those six months of lockdown. And this, like you, the book was written in 2021. By September, it had only gone to the publishers. And I started on February 1st, and it went by August, September, it was with the publishers. And so it's one of the things that I feel very, very pleased about, uh, Raj. I feel very happy that I did this book and, and that it's causing, you know, it's giving so many people so much of happiness. I'm very, very happy about that's a fascinating parallel. Uh, it, it just uh, the parallels so so closely. Insofar as I received an invitation for a book with illustrations yes. early twenty twenty one, and by October twenty twenty one, I had to I had to have uh, submitted all of the writing for it. And, Congratulations! Um, no, I mean to say, unlike the unlike the the monographs or this this edited volume coming out, uh, this one is is a public book. It's a book that people can enjoy as illustrations. It's very accessible. Accessibility is crucial to me, even as a scholar, but particularly as a public educator, particularly, yes. I mean, why else am I doing this podcast? Why else, you know, I mean, yes. it, it, it's important for us to, um, it's important for us to invite the public, the interested yes. public into yes. what we do and, and share what, what we've learned from our, yes. from our, from our toiling. <laughs> so, yes. Um, is there anything else about the the publication that you'd like to touch on? Um, I I had a wonderful art team, which unfortunately, you know, the art team couldn't meet me because, again, like I said, lockdown. So I didn't. In fact, I met my editor just once uh, throughout the time that I was writing. We had to just depend on Zoom calls and things like that. But my art team was wonderful, and uh, just now and then they would show me the photographs and say, "Which Antanarishwara would you like?" Now I would choose one. Then, then they may not have been able to get the rights for it. So it was just, I just told them, I said, you guys just go ahead. You know, you you are getting the rights. You're the one who, you know, are working hard. Now and then you can ask me, but basically I go with what you like. Only now and then I said, this image is not something I like. Like for the Chaucer Jogonese, I wanted a particular image. So they went to the museum and they photographed it and they took permission and, you know, did all that because I was very keen on, on a particular image. So... Uh, the art team was wonderful. My editor, a very, very young, bright uh, gentleman, 
he was just in his late 20s at that time, uh, he uh, knew his work. You know, you, you have to know how many no, number of words we come on each page because it's so calculated. This is the photograph that's going to come. This is the number of words. This is how long your uh, quotation should be from the scriptures. This is the box that you're going to talk about modern day. Like there's a picture of Hemamali because she does the dance of Mahisha Sudmartani regularly. So there's a nice big photograph. I mean, because we brought in modern day, like even uh, it's a lot of uh, different things happening here. Like Vaishno Devi, so many movies, Bollywood movies have been made with people going to Vaishno Devi. So I picked up a nice song about Sherawali, you know, from one of the old movies. So um, I don't know what, what I had started to say. Uh, the art team and the editorial team was fantastic. And I could not have written it without them being so, you know, bright behind me working. We, we used to work sometimes starting at 4.30 in the morning. It was crazy if I would get to know that my editor was also awake. You know, you can make up from WhatsApp and you and I would just say, hey, you're awake. Let's let's start working on this together now. And uh, he was very punctilious about everything. So sometimes he would say, rewrite this, rewrite this. This is not, this is too, he would, his main criticism was, uh, it's too esoteric or it's too historical for academic. Uh, it's too academic, exactly. Not. That's why. And he said, I, I, yeah. I can't tell you how uncanny it is to, to <laughs> talk about the time because it was exactly the same with the story, this book, the stories behind the poses. I mean, it's different in that I was creating narrative, right? I was telling the stories and commenting on them. But I would get these comments about, you know, this needs to be more accessible and this, and, yes, yes. you know, these are the images we'll use. It's hilarious. This is great. We had, we had parallel experiences in 2021. Yes. And that also, to, yeah, 2021, it just started, like I said, February 1st and uh, went on till the, throughout the summer while I was teaching. I would share things with my students online when I would be teaching them that, you know, now I'm writing about this goddess. Sometimes I would wake up having a dream of the goddesses. And, and there were people who I know who were very sick and, the sadness of not being able to meet your family, you know, just being isolated. I was very sad. In fact, one of the uh, in, uh, one of the people who interviewed me about this book, he said, there's a fierceness about this book. I said, really? He said, yeah, there's a fierceness. I read it from... An, an intensity, an intensity. Well, he used the word fierceness. He seemed to be very happy with mm. that. I said, okay, if you think so, I was fiercely writing. I, I, I needed to get little things out of my mind. I needed to get away from all the people who were sick and I just needed to be in a different space, you know, not feel sad, not be depressed and, you know, just concentrate on the goddess. So I actually felt a kind of shakti while writing this book, <laughs> you know, because six months, six months I, I wrote those 200,000 words and I feel like it was, I won't be able to repeat such a beat. It, it was a feat that I managed with Shakti. <laughs> the, uh, the invitation came in my case early 2021 and I wasn't planning on writing that book uh, I was planning on writing another book, which still hasn't been written, actually. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, but uh, various, I mean, the roster was full for the you know, various projects, you know, travels, conferences, clients, you know, this, this, that, the other thing, yeah, um, articles, etc. And so it really was close to the last couple months where it was like, either we get this in by the end of October, so it can be out for Yoga Day, International yeah. Yoga Day uh, okay. 2022 or or not. And uh, I think the bulk of the book was written in under two months, which I similarly, I would not be able to reproduce. I don't think it was just, yes. know, it was like, but also there's something to be said about, um, the, there's something to be said about 
the interplay between destruction and creation, the the interplay between um, yeah. you know meeting a moment of 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 of, of devastation, of of discomfort, of pain, of suffering, and yeah. and 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 leveraging and transmuting that experience to create something. There's something yeah. to be said about that. You're talking. You're epitomizing the goddess <laughs> by saying this because that's what <laughs> <laughs> that's what Kali does for sure. <laughs> Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, yes, yes, yes. Uh, there is something to be said about that. And, and one can write fiercely and one can write intensely uh, once you get into her space, once you get into the goddess's space. I know that sounds like a really new agey or whatever, but <laughs> I did. I, I think, I, I think, I think, um, I think the whole new agey critique is, is born of folks who have, um, opinions not grounded in reality or experience. I think it's very different yeah. when one has an experience of having been able to access a reservoir of energy <laughs> that one was not able to access before. And this is something palpable. And we, we've all experienced elements of this at different times in our life for different purposes. However, we want to theorize it or categorize it or intellectualize it. It's all the same to me. But nevertheless, it's it's a reality. It's a reality versus a new age delusion. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast, reappearing and talking about Shakti. Thank you so much, Raj. It's uh, as always. It's been very enjoyable. I I wish you all the best in your next venture, and uh, look forward to reading your book uh, on assets. <laughs> and uh, yeah, have a good day and. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you. For those listening, of course, we've been speaking with Dr. Nilima. Sorry, I, I'm tongue-tied. I'm tongue-tied. I need more coffee. Dr. Nilima Achikopeka about a brand new, um, wonderfully illustrated, comprehensive publication on uh, the sacred feminine uh, uh, across the Indic subcontinent called Shakti, an exploration of the divine feminine. Until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, keep thinking, and keep contemplating the dynamism of Shakti. Take care.